0: Thank you for downloading this message from Roots Community Church. We pray that you are encouraged by the word. If you are looking for more information, please visit us at rccphoenix.com. We're going to wrap up the end of Colossians uh, chapter two this week, and we're going to break it into two pieces, and that those are going to be the two points of our message. Okay. So, number one, we're going to jump right in here. Number one in your notes is this. God cuts away death. God cuts away death. I'm going to read Colossians 2, verses 11 through 15 out loud. You can follow along silently in your notes. And it says this. When you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. You were buried with Christ when you were baptized, and with him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. You were dead because of your sins, and because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities, <clears throat> excuse me, he shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. So, the key word is kind of up at the beginning of this passage, and that is circumcision. Now, for, uh, we have to remember that every author of the Bible is from Jewish descent. All of them in the New Testament <clears throat> had the training of the old testament of the old law they didn't know jesus was coming so they were trained like everybody in the old testament before them they were uh, many of the young men had to memorize before i think the age of like eight or nine they had to memorize the first five books of the bible now to me i go genesis would be cool but you get into like Numbers in Leviticus, like this guy begat this guy, and this guy begat this guy, and this is the son of this guy. To me, I'd be like, oh my goodness gracious. You know what I mean? Like i just go crazy. But one of the reasons, that, one of the many reasons they did this is so they would know their lineage. They would know their history. So they were telling every young man, memorize the people before you. The first person, Of The nation of Israel the first person that started the nation was who? Abraham Abraham. God made a covenant with Abraham after the Tower of Babel. He scatters everyone out and says you guys Enjoy being ruled over by these these lesser rebellious spirits. I'm not even gonna take land I'm not gonna take a bunch of group of people. I'm gonna take one dude one dude I'm going to alter the world because I am I am the I am. So he makes a covenant with Abraham, and part of that covenant involved circumcision. So the next line of your notes, the covenant God made with Abraham involved circumcision. When we hear this talked about in the New Testament, this word circumcision, it's typically referring to one of two things. The old flesh or the law, the old flesh or the law. <clears throat> so Genesis seventeen seven through 11, this is God talking to Abraham when he establishes this part of the covenant. I will confirm my covenant with you and your descendants after you from generation to generation. This is the everlasting covenant. I will always be your God and the God of your descendants after you. And I will give you the entire land of Canaan, where you now live as a foreigner, to you and your descendants. It will be their possession forever, and I will be their God. Let's pause right there. God's making big-time promises. I'm going to be your God. I'm going to advise you. I'm going to guide you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to lead you. I'm going to show you exactly what you're supposed to do. I'm giving you the entire land of Canaan. All this is going to be specifically designed just for you. I'm going to back it up. It's yours forever. Now, then God said to Abraham, your responsibility, your part of the deal, is to obey the terms of the covenant. You and all your descendants have this continual responsibility. This is the covenant that you and your descendants must keep. Each male among you must be circumcised. You must cut off the flesh of your foreskin as a sign of the covenant between me and you. <clears throat> this typically happened at the, uh, after a young man was born who was a Jew in the nation of Israel. This typically happened on the eighth day after he was born. They were actually weren't allowed to name the child until the eighth day. You remember David and Bathsheba had a son together off of that affair, right? Um, The child died at day seven. He didn't even get a chance to name or circumcise his child. This was part of their culture. Okay? So, the reason this is important is because in Acts chapter 15, next on your notes, Jewish religious leaders insisted that Gentile Christians had to be circumcised to be saved. So, you have... This covenant with Abraham that's gone thousands of years before Jesus. This entire nation has been established. The Jewish people, the nation of Israel. This has been established. And all of the males from that time until until present day are supposed to be circumcised. Some of them weren't. They were rebellious at some point. But most of them kept this covenant with God and they they were circumcised. Now you have these gentile believers who were saying hey israel we worship the same god the savior the messiah has come he was a jew and some of the old school religious guys were like oh you want in with us you got to follow the same rules we had to follow so y'all got to be circumcised now at eight days you will never remember this as a young man but at the age of 40 you may rethink your decision Right? They're like right. how committed am I am I exactly to this, yeah. to this, right? And now nah, I'm kidding, right? They were committed. They were committed. Right? But they were trying to impose on them the rules to get to to get to God. Christ came and fulfilled the covenant. These guys are still insisting that people participate in the rules. Paul and Barnabas hear this discussion and they step up and go, no, 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 no. You don't have to follow those rules anymore. They don't have to be circumcised. And they they keep insisting. So this argument goes all the way back to the disciples. The disciples meet together and they decide, no. That's part of the Old Covenant and that does not apply to the Gentile believers. So when you hear circumcision talked about in the New Testament, that is the backdrop for what they mean. You have to follow the rules. You got to follow the old system that was put into place. You have to follow what Abraham had to do and every of these other little boys had to do at the age of eight days old, and you had to be circumcised. And he's telling them all of those rules are done. No more of the rules. It's faith in Jesus. Paul describes, next on your notes, that believers in Christ, had a spiritual circumcision performed on their hearts. What does that mean? The flesh and the death that accompanies it is removed and we are made new. The flesh and the death that accompanies it is removed and we're made new. So he's taking this old rule and kind of using it to paint a picture almost like a metaphor to say hey there's a there's an analogy here like you don't have to do that physical thing a spiritual circumcision happened in your heart this next part why did it why does it happen in their heart this next part's very important we're going to come back to this in just a second paul says we were already dead because of our sin and sinful nature we were already dead because of our sin and our sinful nature but God forgives our sins and then we're made alive. <clears throat> You've probably heard me say here before that Jesus didn't die to make bad people good. He died to make dead people alive. This right here is, this, is one of the many scriptural backings for that statement. He's cutting away the dead part and now he's making you alive. You have moved from death to life. We're going to come back to that. So just keep that in the, kind of the front burner of your memory real quick. After Paul gives this kind of analogy of a spiritual circumcision, the flesh has been cut away, he, and he continues a description of what God did for us kind of in, in a dramatic fashion. He turns up the drama meter a little bit to kind of grab people's attention. God canceled the record of our sin charges... And nailed them to the cross. So. The enemy has been described as our accuser. So let me bring what he's getting at kind of to a modern picture for us. Okay. Everybody has seen on television. Maybe in real life, but definitely on television. A courtroom. Right. You see a courtroom. And the guy who is prosecuting or bringing the evidence that someone did wrong is the prosecuting attorney. The judge is sitting in the middle, there's the defense attorney. In this scenario, what he's painting kind of in a modern way, the picture he's painting is that there is a prosecuting attorney, an accuser, which is the enemy. And I'll use myself in this example, so I don't call none of y'all out and nobody gets too nervous, but um, he goes before the judge, God, who's sitting there on on his throne, and he says, "God, uh, Matt has done a whole bunch of stuff wrong. He is guilty of just a countless number of sins." And God says, "Well, if you have evidence, let's hear it." And so the enemy pulls out a sheet of paper, almost like those old printer papers that just keep going and going and going like in a box, you know what I mean? Like this big long heaping pile of paper. He pulls that out and says, well, the first time Matt sinned was when he was, fill in the blank, like four years old. Did you like the carpet on fire, Matt? No, that was my brother, Mark. Are you sure? Yes. Why are you holding matches? took them from my brother Mark so he wouldn't burn the other part of the carpet. How come your fingers are all black? How come you're shaking your hand and asking for a Band-Aid? It looks like you're lying. And he begins to list every sin I've ever committed, known and unknown, for everybody to hear, including God the judge. Not just the things that I did The things that I thought about doing Not just the words that came out of my mouth that everybody heard but the words that went on in my head That nobody heard The ideas and the action that led to immoral actions and activities on my part and the things that I just thought about That were immoral and terrible He lists them all And as he's going through his big old huge list, I'm like, dang it, he ain't even made it till I'm 11 yet. He's got like nine pages down, like all these kinds of things I've done, right? And then God steps forward and says, wait a second, didn't he come to faith? And Jesus steps up and says, yes, he did. So God gets off his throne. This is the picture that Paul's painting. He walks around as the judge, yanks the paper out of the defense attorney's hand And then nails that paper to the cross and says, uh, "All of these sins that you're listing off have already been paid for. You, what else do you have? What other evidence do you have that he should not be here with me in heaven for eternity?" And the devil just sits there. The prosecuting attorney goes, "I, I, I, I "I don't know nothing. He don't have anything. Great, case closed. He's mine." When he says. That he nails the, the sins to the cross. He didn't do it through a piece of paper like my little analogy here. He did it by making the perfect son of God become our sin and become our iniquity. And when he says he nailed the sin, our sin, to the cross, what he's saying is he put all of that on Jesus and then executed his son in our place. That's the picture he's painting here. He disarmed the enemy. You have no other accusations to bring against Matt because I took them all and put them on my son and he's been executed. He died on the cross for all those. You don't have anything else to say. Case closed. Now, this this statement that I told you to kind of keep on the front burner of your mind where Paul says we're already dead because of the sin and that we're made alive when God forgives us and we come to faith in Christ this is why it's important to not just read the Bible to knock it out and get it done oh yeah I read, I read a chapter this week but to sit there with it and ask questions pray and ask God to show us things because the Bible gives us the answer in this passage to answer some of the questions that unbelievers present to us. There are some people who ask a question today. Some of them are just trying to make fun of believers. Other people are trying to, um, trying to ask a question and understand. And I remember when I first heard this question, I was kind of thrown off by it because I was like, well, that's kind of a good question. And the question that unbelievers pose to us is this. How can a loving God send people to hell? Remember the first time you heard that? Did you go, "Eh, That that's a good question. Or did you have like a theological response right at the first time you ever heard it? Because I didn't. I was like, well, you just have to believe him. This passage answers this question for us. And let me show you how. Next on your notes. God doesn't send anyone to hell. God doesn't send anyone to hell. Hell, next on your notes. So, hell was originally designed for the devil and his spiritual allies. Hell was originally designed for the devil and his spiritual allies. <clears throat> now, what I want to do here, real quick, is just pause and give you just a little bit of backdrop on exactly what hell is and who it's for, according to Scripture. The reason I say that hell was originally designed for the devil and his spiritual allies, you may have heard that, it's been, that it was reserved for the devil and his angels. Which are, and That's one translation. Another in, uh, translation says the devil and his demons. Another one says the devil and his spiritual like his, the spirits that rebelled against God with him. I just summarized all them and called them the devil's spiritual allies. So, whatever translation you read qualifies here. So, how do I know, and how do we know as believers, that hell was not designed for people? Matthew 25 41. This is Jesus talking about God. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Just that one sentence alone, who was hell prepared for? The devil and his angels, his allies, right? Revelation 20, verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur. This is another way to describe hell, lake of fire, burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. What happens this was prepared for them at the end of days. They are put there Let's continue reading verse 11 12 and we'll skip to 15 Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them And I saw the dead great and small standing before the throne and the books were open pause books of what Books of every action of every person who's ever lived. There's a lot of books. Now let's keep going. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. So you got all this big stack of all these books, probably billions and trillions of books, right? Like you got to hopefully they're alphabetized. I hope I, that's not my job to find <laughs> find somebody's name in there, right? Oh, geez, here we go. So we'll start at the top, right? So, um, All these books of all your actions and sins you've ever committed and then there's this other book of book of life okay the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books here your actions and your sins and the things that you've done in your life so your life has a book that's being written about it and every decision every word every action you've ever done is recorded in that book and at the end of days, they're going to open that book, and they're going to read off the things that you did with your life. The dead were judged according to what they uh, found in the books. And then verse 15, anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So at the moment, in our, if we go back to our picture I was painting earlier about the defense attorney, and I'm on trial, and God's the judge. The enemy doesn't have to have a big old long piece of paper. He just has this book of everything I've ever done. God takes that book, nails it to the cross, and then says, is Matt's name in the book of life? And they say, Matthew, Christopher, yeah. I made it. Right? Anyone whose name is not in that book is thrown into the lake of fire. It was not designed for people It was designed for the enemy, the devil, Lucifer, Satan, Natas, whatever you want to call him. And his spiritual allies, the ones that rebelled against God. And now God is telling people, if you're going to rebel against me and follow his lead, then I'm just going to send you where he's going. It wasn't designed for you. It was designed for them. But I'm going to put you there with them if you reject me. Okay, that's a little background to hell. Now, here's good news. Next line here, notes. Every human being ever to live, except Jesus, has sinned. And in doing so, automatically put themselves on the path to eternal destruction. Automatically put themselves on the path to eternal destruction or to hell. How do I know that every person has sinned? Romans 3, 22-24. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. Notice what that said. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. So get the picture. Hell is designed for the devil and his angels, his allies, his demons, the rebellious spirits that are adversarial to God. If you're going to follow him and not me, I'll just let you go where he's going to go. Since... Every person has a sinful nature and cannot avoid sinning You are automatically on route to hell God is not sending people to hell You're already on the way Because of your sin the wages of sin is death What you earn from disobedience is eternal destruction. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So here it is. There's a giant pit and people are being pushed out of the airplane without a a parachute. And no matter what you do, no matter how good you think you are, your sinful nature, you cannot escape. You are born into sin with that sinful nature. You are going to sin. It is unavoidable. And you are falling without a parachute. And that is where you're going to land. God is not sending you there. The wages of sin automatically sends you there. And he's standing here going, do you believe me? And if you say yes, he's snatching you out of the air. And he is saving you, which is why we say I'm saved. I'm saved from what? Eternal destruction. He has plucked me out of the air falling. And what we our job is as believers in Christ is to stand on the outside on the ledge he created and take the cross and put it out there and say, "Take this. <clears throat> you can be saved from your destruction. You don't have to land there. You don't have to do all this crazy stuff. You can take This and believe in him and receive salvation. That's why we call it salvation God's not a big mean cruel heartless being sending people into eternal torment He is infinitely holy and eternally loving and he's giving a giving us a chance one We don't deserve by the way He's giving every person a chance to be rescued from that destruction Our culture mocks believers in Jesus and our our creator by saying things like, oh, do what the invisible sky daddy wants and he won't be mad and send you to hell. But the truth is, every person has sinned and their sinful nature automatically places them on the track to hell. And God is saying, hey, you have already gone down this road. This is how it ends. Come to me and I." All you got to do is be saved. While you're falling from the plane into the pit, you don't have to, uh, let me do some sit ups. Let me show you I can do some jumping jacks and move my arms. The, and I, I, I can say these things. I can recite these words as I'm going down. No, he doesn't even ask you that. All he's saying is, faith in me and snatch, you're out, you're, out, you're out of harm's way. That is the root of why we say we're being saved. At the very moment anyone puts their faith in Jesus, God snatches the long printout or the book of all your wrongdoings out of the hand of the accuser, disarms him, puts it all on Jesus, nails him to the cross, and says, That one is forgiven, and he is with me forever. Now, with that in mind, with all of what I just said in mind, that picture, is that picture in your head? The vivid picture of what God has done for us in the courtroom and falling and saving us from eternal destruction, that picture really is, is alive in your head right now. Then here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna stop just for a second. And now, and now with that picture firmly in your head, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna take just a minute and worship. I'm going to have Brian come and just sing a song, and I want you to listen to the words of the song, and if you know it, my guess is you probably do, you're free to sing along with him. Worship is not about taking a moment and liking a song and having the goosebumps. Worship is about you giving to God what is 100% his. And when you hear lyrics like, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe, you could hear that a lot and be like, yep, yeah, but just wait. He snatched that list of my wrongdoings out of the accuser's hands and said, I am disarming you. You have nothing left to come at anyone with. I'm putting that on my son. You were already on the route to hell, and because he is good, because he is holy, because he is loving, what does he do? He gives you a chance that you don't deserve, that I don't deserve, and he rescues us, and we are saved simply by saying, Jesus, I believe. That should change the way we read his word. That should change the way that we sing a song. That should change the way that we worship. It should change the way that we hear the lyrics of of, of somebody who's singing or leading us in worship. It should change it for us. Because the reality is, is that I didn't want nothing to do with him. I was raised in the church. I was hurt. I was angry. I was betrayed. I was mad. I was wounded by the leadership. I I looked at it like you owe me something because I've done all these these things and followed all these rules. And I got real arrogant and real angry. And I look back on that with such embarrassment. Who do I think I was to be entitled to that? And still, in the midst of that, he says, take my hand, I got you, and pulls me off of a path to destruction. He really, literally paid it. The second part of the passage, and this is the last point for our message today, is number two, and it's this. The rules lose out to faith. The rules lose out to faith. Let me read these last seven verses of chapter two. Don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink, or for not celebrating certain holy days or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths. For these rules are only shadows of the reality, the reality to come, and Christ Himself is that reality. Don't let anyone condemn you by insisting on pious self denial or the worship of angels, saying they have had visions about these things. Their sinful minds have made them proud. They're not connected to Christ, the head of the body. For He holds the whole body together with the joints and ligaments. And it grows as God nourishes it. You have died with Christ and he has set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. So why do you keep on following the rules of the world such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? Such rules are mere human teachings about things that deteriorate as we use them. These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion and pious self-denial and severe bodily discipline but they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. Let me sum up what he just said. There's no way to follow the rules so well that you are in salvation. Jesus fulfilled the old covenant, and he set this new path in place. And what Paul does right here is he comes for the neck. He comes for the jugular. He's going for the kill shot for people who follow this new age, new spirituality idea. Remember, the Colossian church and the Colossian culture was one that was steeped in this new age thing that we're kind of dealing with today, very similar. Secret knowledge, different ways to elevate yourself, to to achieve new spiritual realms and and to to tap into that unseen God force power All of that stuff that's kind of going on in our culture today is stuff that they were dealing with back then. Very similar. And then Paul says to them, you need to be careful that no one's taking this and tricking you or blending this in with Christianity trying to say it's the same thing. Here's here's what he says. Don't let anyone condemn you by insisting on pious self-denial, the worship of angels, saying they've had visions about these things. Their sinful minds have made them proud and they're not connected to Christ. Here's what he's telling us. If anyone, Christians, ministers, pastors, people call themselves believers, people are a member of a church or denomination or anything, if they claim that they've had these visions, the secret impartation. They've seen angels deliver them things or these spiritual messengers um, um, who reveal these secret efforts that we can do to try to achieve this deeper level of understanding God and tap into this unseen power. Not my words. Paul says those people are not connected to Christ. They're connected to something. Notice he doesn't say they're not connected to anything. they are just kind of got a wild hair and making stuff up and trying to be important. He says they're not connected to Christ. What does that imply? They're connected to something, but it ain't him. This is one of the reasons why from time to time I will address certain people in in the church world who preach things that are not in line with Scripture and kind of call them out and say, avoid this. Let me do this now with the passion translation of the Bible. A lot of people have asked me which translation is the best. I don't think um, from uh, the scholars and theologians and historians I've listened to, not one has it really good, so you need to list, or not one has it perfect. There's some of them that are very good, so read different translations and different versions and things, because they have different information, older things, older manuscripts and um, translations didn't have the Dead Sea Scrolls, and those were some of the older accounts of some of the Bible. They didn't have that information, so read old ones, read new ones, and but this Passion translation is one we should avoid hands down. If you got one, totally understand. If you're like, bro, I paid thirty bucks, I will give you the thirty bucks and use it as bonfire material and buy you a different one. Why? because the one guy who said i wanted to create this translation one guy no checks and balances no asking hey you're an expert in this field i'm an expert in this field do you see this the same way oh no what about this no checks and balances just him that's problem number one number two he says that jesus himself appeared to him in the vision what did he just say Jesus himself appeared to him in a vision, and Jesus told him, I want you to translate the Bible in a new, fresh way so you'll understand things, and I'll give you interpretations of Scripture that have never been accessed before. It is a walking modern example of what Paul is talking to us about in in Colossians chapter 2. He's not connected to Christ. Not my words, Paul's. So in this way, he kind of deals with the overly spiritual people, right? All the people who are like, oh, I had a vision that this angel delivered this special message to me. He's like dealing with all these guys, right? Now he says, oh, he's, I love Paul because he's an equal opportunity insulter, right? Like, so he deals with all the, like, the, the, the spiritual people, and now he comes over to the legalistic people and says, but all you people who are talking about the rules... Y'all ain't right either. Because it's easy for the rule people to look at the spiritual people when they go off the rails and be like, Mm-mm. You're just nuts. And it's easy for the spiritual people to look at the legalistic people when they're so hell-bent on following the rules all the time that they can't do anything or have hey, – they can't do anything. They go, bro, you're so much in bondage. And they sit and yell at each other when Paul's like, no, y'all, if you do this, y'all ain't right and let me come to the rule keepers. The rule keepers is where I live. That's where I was raised. That's where I found comfort. I wish there was more rules. I really did. I want there to be rules, because I know if I did them right or not. It was no heart. It was all just that I follow here. So these people who are talking about you have to be circumcised, you have to... Follow these feasts. There were several feasts that the Jewish people had to um, honor and engage in on a regular basis. And then he comes for all those things. and says, don't let anyone fool you or tell you that you have to follow the feasts. You have to follow the rules. Included in the rules is tithing. You don't have to do that. We talked about that before. You don't have to follow the Sabbath. And let me pause right here. How many know what the Sabbath is? Day of rest. Day of rest, right? Depending on what denomination, some people may say Saturday, some people may say Sunday, and that even causes arguments. Right? You do not have to honor the Sabbath in a legalistic way. Not my words, Paul's. Don't let anybody burden you with these rules, these all these things that you have to do to get close to God. Now, the Hebrew word for Sabbath is, Sh- is Sabbat. It's in your notes. And the definition is to rest, to stop, or to cease from work. So you nailed it. Now, I heard someone preach a message that said, we are obliged, that we have to, it is a requirement for every person who's not a Jew to honor the Sabbath. Have to. Requirement. Right. Not a blessing or something that God has laid out for us to follow to help us rest and give us a gift. No, a requirement. This man was a pastor and got a phone call uh, on one of his Sabbath days, his day off, and from a uh, 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 staff member of the church, and they said... I'm sorry to bug in your day off, Pastor, but we kind of had this little bit of an emergency and we need an answer from you on this. And the pastor asked the staff member, Are you okay if I commit murder? And the staff member was thoroughly confused and was like, Huh? And the pastor asked again, Are you okay if I if if I commit murder? The guy goes, No. He goes, well, that's one of the Ten Commandments, just like the Sabbath. And if I broke one of them, I broke all of them. So you asking me to work on my day off, get this, is the equivalent of me committing murder. Legalistic rules. You have to do these things to get close to God and to honor him. This is what Paul is saying. You don't have to do those things. Is the Sabbath a gift to us? Yes. yes Is the day of rest a gift to us? So we're not burning the candle at both ends and wearing ourselves out Absolutely Did god example it for us and say if you want to rest like I did then enter into that rest It follow that Well, is it beneficial for us on a physical level? Is there are there principles in place for letting the land rest if you're a farmer? Yes, and giving it a, a, a season off or, or a year off to kind of replenish before you plant again. Yes, these are good ideas, but if you call somebody on their day off because there's an emergency, it is not the equivalent of you committing murder. Paul is dealing with the hyper-spiritual people who got this secret knowledge. He's dealing with these hyper-legalistic people and saying, hey, Jesus paid the price for everything. Remember, salvation is the starting point, not the end goal. It's the starting point. Because from that, he gives us freedom. Next on your notes, the Sabbath rest, you may not have known this, but the Sabbath rest is the only one of the Ten Commandments not repeated in the New Testament. All the other commandments, the other nine, are repeated in the New Testament, some of them by Jesus, some of them by Paul, and other books of the Bible. But the Sabbath is not repeated. For those of you people who go, I don't know about that, I've given you, I'm not going to go through them, but I've listed the nine places, or the the nine commandments, and the places where God reinforces them. They're not misnumbered. You'll see 1, 2, 3, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. Number four is the Sabbath. If you want to go back and read them, these are the points. These are the nine commandments that are, re, that are repeated and reiterated in the New Testament. Why is the Sabbath rest not repeated? Why is that one not given to us in the Old Testament and the New Testament? Why is it? Because Jesus is our rest. He is our rest. Now, that might sound nifty, but what does that mean? Next line in your notes. The phrase, Jesus is our rest, means we don't have to work for our salvation. We only need to have faith in Christ. You don't have to go through these worldly systems. Why do you keep following the rules of the world, such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? Such rules are mere human teachings that the, about things that deteriorate as we use them, he's saying all of these rules, all of these things that were in place before Jesus came, do not apply to you to get to Him. Are there some of those things, moral parts of the law, civil parts of the law, that will be beneficial and have been reiterated for you in the New Testament? Yes, love God with everything you've got, love your neighbor as yourself. If you follow this, All of the commandments and all of the prophets hang on these two things. Should you, was it okay if I murder now? No. Is it okay if you covet now? No. Why? Love God and love people. Is it loving to murder, to steal, to kill, to destroy? No. Those things are covered in the New Testament. You do not have to follow all the rules and check all the boxes to get to Jesus. He is our rest. And if you really want to get down into it and you really want to think about something that'll blow your mind, that'll cook your noodle, my famous saying here that people love, um, that'll cook your noodle is this. Jesus moved you from death to life before you knew you needed it. So that when you decided to believe in him, he would now move you from death to life now in this world. And he's prepared to, to save you from death And give you eternal life in the future he has moved you from death to life in the past in the present and the future he has made sure that all of it is secure for us but that salvation is the first domino and what he's telling us is that after we realize that jesus paid it all he has given us freedom To get away from these bondages, to get away from these systems, to get away from having to sacrifice, to get away from having to be forced into the Sabbath, to be forced into all these things, you now have freedom to follow him, and that in and of itself is a rest. I am resting in Jesus. I am confident that faith in Him leads me to eternal life. I am confident that I have been moved from death to life because of my faith in Him. But that faith now—I'm alive to do what? To be bound again? No. To be free to follow Him and to reach back and help other people get off the track that we were on. I love the fact. I think it's brilliant that he that he deals with. Um, When he talks about these things are uh, such rules are human teachings about things that deteriorate as we use them. I think it's brilliant because next on your notes, many of the spiritual items used by those in the new age are natural things that will deteriorate over time. They have a little stone, a little crystal, a little rock, a little figurine, a little plant, a little piece of wood all of this stuff is a created thing that we're worshiped that they are worshipping why does this matter and what does this tell us next on your notes we can't achieve spiritual transformation by physical means he's telling us you cannot achieve spiritual change or transformation by physical means he ends it He ends the chapter by saying something wildly profound. Next line in our notes. You cannot conquer evil desires on your own strength. You cannot conquer evil desires with our own strength. I'll back up one of those notes. So if, if, if if you missed it, we can't achieve spiritual transformation by physical means and we cannot conquer our evil desires with our own strength this means temporary following temporary man-made rules will not transform our hearts there's no circumcision no animal sacrifice no altar building no rule keeping no festival honoring no no uh no sabbath keeping no special day keeping no coming to church on this day and not this day and to make sure we're honoring this day and not that day none of that changes the heart of man none of it we cannot put those things as and elevate them as this is how i changed i stopped watching those movies i stopped going to those places i stopped tasting those things and stuff, watching those things. Are those beneficial? Yes, but they do not get you to a changed heart. A changed heart should look at those things anew and go, I don't want to be a part of those things. I have a conviction in me. There was something in me that wanted it before, but that flesh has been cut away through a spiritual circumcision, and a new appetite is arisen in me that is warring with that flesh constantly every single day. And there's some times where I look at those fleshly things that I used to want, and I lean back towards them, and I feel gross afterwards. And I have this this conviction. I have this thing, man, why did I do that again? That's conviction. And then you go, well, i got to straighten myself up. you got to repent, turn from those things, and go back and lean on not the flesh but the spirit. There's no way to serve God without God. You cannot, even though you want to try really hard, I really want to be good, I really want to do the right thing, I really want to straighten myself up, you are not going to be able to do it. And people think they have to do that before they come to God. They think they have to clean themselves up before they walk in the door of a church or a gathering of believers. And when they don't, they go, well, that doesn't work for me. No, it's exactly backwards. You have to come to him and move from death to life, have that spiritual circumcision. He cuts the flesh away. You move from death. You enter life. You are saved. There's immense gratitude. Now I have freedom, and I look at everything different. That's what Paul is telling us. There's no way to do it without him. There is only one thing that moves us from death to life, and that is faith in the one and only Son of the living God, Jesus Christ. That's it. Period. End of sentence. Nothing added. Nothing take away. And that, my friends, is good news. That is the gospel of Jesus that's the gospel